Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So we had four types of Christmas from our man on the video. You had Scrooge, who recognises the darkness. Uh, you had the Christmas shopper, who's, you know, getting in debt and losing touch with reality. You had Santa, who's like, you know, it's happy, but is it real? And then you had, I guess, the Christian story, which Christmas was started on. Um, and so Christmas helps us, as Matthew was saying, think about the light and the darkness. We were having a discussion on our table. It's sort of Christmas makes you realise there is some real challenging things in our world, but there's some really good things in our world too. Uh, and so the intro course is a place where we go, well, how do we, what are we doing with this? And that newspaper article was interesting. And, you know, I think many people, when they see home and whether you're working for the government and trying to solve it on a government level or just on a daily level, it's the sense of like, can we solve this? How do we solve this? Is, are we hopeless here? And that sense of hopelessness and is there any light in the darkness? And, uh, and so today I want to think about three things about hope and light in a dark world from the original story of Christmas as told by John, the gospel writer in the first century. And um, it's three things here. John's going to talk about the light in the darkness of meaninglessness, the light in the darkness of brokenness, and the light in the darkness of emptiness or our insatiable desires. And uh, so I'm just going to make a few comments on those uh, as we we go through. Uh, So do keep the passage there. Um, and, uh, And then we'll discuss it. And uh, I don't know what you think of having a Bible passage out on a Monday night in a, in a, in a venue, but uh, it's an ancient document that has inspired millions and millions and millions of people. So it may be worth giving some thought to. The light and the darkness of, meaningless, of meaninglessness, or to find meaning. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now... The word, word, that's a confusing sentence, uh, is actually a Greek word which has a lot more power to it than the English word, word. It's the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. And uh, we get the, the English word, which we, logic, uh, the logic of the universe. And so logos was a first century Greco, in the Greco-Roman world, had had some power. People understood, as in, had some capital as a word. Um, the logos was the meaning, the rationale, the reason, the purpose for being. And Greek philosophers for years had debated, what is the logos for life? What is the meaning of life? And up to the time of Jesus, they pretty much concluded, we're not sure. And so famously, when the, the Apostle Paul debates people on Mars Hill in Athens, and we read about it in a book called the Book of Acts, chapter 17, there's Epicureans and Stoic philosophers debating with the great Apostle. And uh, the Stoics are people who go, no, there's no meaning. Uh, and they're fatalistic. So it's like, you know, suffering happens. Yeah, get on with it. You know, stiff up a lip. Uh, just accept your lot. Trying to make the most out of it. And so what they would say is being moral is a way to find meaning in a meaningless world. Just be moral. Be good. Uh, accept your lot. And uh, the Epicureans on the other side of that uh, said, no, there's no, there's no point to life. Uh, there's no meaning, just so just enjoy yourself, pleasure, hedonism. So you had the Stoics who were sort of going, you know, be good, moralistic, and you had the Epicureans saying, well, no, just seek pleasure. And John says, no, no, that, those, those aren't necessarily bad answers, but they're not the answer to the meaning of life, the logos, the reason behind it all. You didn't go back far enough, John says. He says, you've got to go back to the beginning, in the beginning. Why, why are we here? In the first place, 
because of the Logos, the Word, Jesus. And he made it, and it says, through him all things were made. So if he's the maker of it all, then he's the Logos of it all, because he's the reason it was made. 2,000 years later, I think we're in exactly the same place as our Greek philosophers in the first century on Mars here with the Apostle Paul. Be moral and good and just accept life. No, seek pleasure and make the most of it and have the best time in your life. There is no meaning, but that's the two answers to how to find meaning. Stephen Hawkins, the, the late Stephen Hawkins, once in his very famous book, A Brief History of Time, said, why does the universe go to all the bother of existing in the first place? That's the question. What's the Logos? Why is it here? And the typical response is, you know, well, be good or seek pleasure. There is no meaning. I'm not sure they're the worst answers, but I'm not sure they're the best answer either. Uh, I read a very famous book a few years ago called Man's Search for Meaning uh, by a psychiatrist. A very famous book who uh, is called Viktor Frankl, Jew Jewish psychiatrist who survived the death camps in World War II. And he was used to go and kind of do psychiatry in the death camps. And he explores the reason why people under those horrendous conditions, some people seem to stay strong and kind. And, uh, and while others gave up and became collaborators with evil to survive. He said, how could some people, exactly the same circumstances, be these generous, kind, sacrificial people? And why would some people who, previous to the death camps, had been some of the most upstanding people in society, collaborate with evil? for their own gains. He said, what's the difference? And he goes on to say, many people had made a, a career of, uh, you know, or, uh, uh, of, uh, made, their, made, made their meaning in life a career or social status or family. And these meanings, all based on this life, hedonism, being moral, gone, swept away by Nazi death camps. And see, he said, some collapsed psychologically and spiritually. He's, he talks about some people literally dying because they just gave up. This is just so worn out. They just, and they died the next day. They, and some collapsed morally. He said they prepared to use every means, even brute force, theft, and betrayal of their friends in order to save themselves. But then he says, that those that didn't crumble, he said, had a different reference point in the same circumstances. And when Dr. Frankel spoke to the prisoners, in order to infuse their suffering with dignity and meaning, he would say, someone looks down on each of us in these difficult hours, a friend, a wife, someone alive or dead, or God, and they would expect us not to disappoint them. And because Frankel discovered that the only way prisoners could re retain their humanity in such brutality was to relocate their meaning of life outside of this life into some transcendent reference point beyond this world. John says in the beginning was the Logos, the transcendent reference point for why we're here, where we're going, what's it all about. John says, you want to know a meaning in life that can keep your humanity and kindness under incredible brutality? You want to know a light that shines in the darkness of a death camp of Nazi? In the beginning was the Logos. Do you just want to go and check that, Matt? The future, uh, the meaning of human history. And do you see what he says about Jesus there? He says he was the, oh, it's, it's here, here. He says he was the, uh, through him all things were made. He's saying they're making the claim that he's the creator. He's saying that uh, he gives life to all people. And he says that he's a person. He's not some impersonal force. You know, the Logos, which the Greek philosophers thought was like, oh, it's just some abstract idea. John says, no, it's a person for you to know and to love and to worship. Um, so that's interesting. Now, so John is saying Jesus is the light who brings light into the darkness and meaninglessness. John goes on to talk about the brokenness, though. 
And he, he talks very candidly about darkness. Do you see that in verse 5? He says, there was, um, the light shines in the darkness. But, so John is saying there's darkness. But he says the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 9 he says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So John is very clear that the world is full of darkness. It's a broken place. The Divide article in the Irish Independent on the 4th of December shows that. I think this is one of the biggest problems people have who don't believe in God, and I respect you for that, to answer the question, what is wrong with our world? Why is it dark? Why is it broken? I remember driving home a few years ago with one of my sceptical colleagues. He thinks it's crazy I believe the Bible and traditional Christian doctrines. And he was giving me the tirade of questions in a really friendly, fun, engaging manner about suffering and the Bible and other religions and all these things. And uh, so on and so forth. And at one point in the journey, I said to him, I'll answer your questions if you answer me just one question. What is wrong with the world? We drove on a bit in silence. His nice BMW, he ummed and ahed. I said, seriously, what's wrong with the world? Why is it a mess? Why is it dark? And he ummed and he said, I don't know. I've never thought of it that much before, Steve. And then the conversation moved on. If you don't believe in God and you believe we're here all by chance, the process of blind genetic replication, no God guiding any of it, when you die, you rot, survivor of the fittest, and the less fit don't survive, then why would you expect a world that isn't cruel, that isn't random, that hasn't got horrendous divides economically, that's not unjust. Where do you get this idea that it shouldn't be like this, that it should be light? It is just random. It is just survival of the fittest. Your worldview should say, no, it's just a dark place. We don't necessarily have to have any hope. But I think we know something's wrong. We know that babies dying is wrong and miscarriages and famines and war and terrorism and paedophilia and murder and me lying to you. That's wrong. It's a dark world. And we imagine and we hope for a world without disease, suffering and death. Some of us work for charities that are doing great stuff towards that end. But none of us actually ever experience it fully. We've never lived in a world without those things. Yet deep inside our consciousness, we think this world should be a place where it's just light and no darkness. C.S. Lewis helpfully put it, it's like a fish constantly being surprised at the wetness of the water. It's like, why is our world like this? It's like a fish going, why is it so wet? It's just... Why would you expect anything else? What world are you comparing it to? What, what inhabitants do you expect to be in? And when you push people to answer the question, and you can have these discussions on your table, or you see it in modern politics all the time, the answer typically goes, ah, the reason the world is such a bad place is those people over there who don't believe what I believe over here. Politically, religiously, whatever. In other words, if everyone was not like them and more like me, and we thought this liberal or this conservative side, then the world would be solved. And you know it's not the case. But that's, we're not informed enough. We're not politically engaged enough. We haven't got enough technology. Not true. You know, we haven't got enough education. If we just sort it... And so the answer is always something out there. But wait a minute, because it doesn't work. If you're making the claim that if everyone was just a bit like you and your views, the world would be perfect, then would that be the case? If everyone was like you and had your views, would the world be perfect? I remember reading uh, someone put it like this. Imagine I'm trying to rid the world of suffering. And I decide to wipe out the very worst people in history. Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, whoever. That would mean that the worst people left in the world were the next tier of evil. Serial killers, rapists, child molesters. So I chuck them out next. 
In a world without those people, the worst, the most evil people on the earth might be thieves and drink drivers and maybe swindlers, cheats, liars and adulterers. Who knows? So I wipe them out too. Before long, I'll be forced to the shocking reality that I am the worst person in the world. Yet the world still isn't rid of suffering because I cause so much of it myself. I bully, manipulate, drive too fast, hurt people, say bad things, think worse things. In that world where I've get kicked out everyone who's not like me who's bad, I am a byword for evil, a pop culture reference point for all-consuming villainy. In that world, I am Hitler. In other words, the line between good and evil uh, doesn't, um, doesn't run between me and the other people who are bad over there. It runs inside all of us. And there's a fight every day in our soul. This is what a man called uh, Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn discovered. He was a Russian captain in the Second World War and someone that spoke out against Stalin, against the Gulag and the Soviet forced labor the camp system. He was imprisoned, beaten, exiled, and despite winning the Nobel Prize uh, in the 1970s for his work, he was afraid to travel to Stockholm, I've just been there, for fear of being, uh, you know, got at. He was a brilliant writer and he stood up for justice, truth, compassion against some of the world's worst evils, like the stuff like Stalin, and, uh, and torture and all sorts. And he says this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. In other words, he's going to wish the bad apple theory was true. Just get rid of the bad apples and the rest are good. But he goes on to say, but the, deli- the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? John says, you want to know the darkness, you need to look in. And a light came in and we rejected it. Stop looking outside, look in. There's brokenness inside, that's the problem. No, politi- no politics, technology, education is going to solve it. It's internal, not external. I wonder when the first time you realised... The world was broken. And if you're honest, maybe you can disagree. You were broken. I was four and a half. I was raised in Uganda. And now I can see how evil the world was. It was EDR mean time. My parents were missionary doctors out in rural Uganda. And he'd killed people that my mum and dad knew. And he probably did it. Um, And it was horrendous. Lots of people being killed. Uh, But obviously I was oblivious. I was young. And uh, that's the evil out there, isn't it? But it's, uh, we had two good friends of mine, Noel and, and Taro. Noel was a richer African, and Taro means war. In Africa, you often name people after circumstances. And in the local language, he was called Intaro, which meant war. Uh, and uh, and it, uh, we, we, we were fine there. All the, you know, I was a white guy, I guess more money. There's Noel, who was pretty rich. And then there's Taro, who was much poorer. He had bowed legs because of malnutrition. He hadn't been fed properly as a kid. and He didn't have shoes. Me and Noel had shoes. But it was fine. We were young. And we used to have three cars, and we played with our cars and all the rest. And I remember one time getting absolutely mad at Intero. And I picked up a stick, and I smacked him as hard as I could behind the legs, and he collapsed on the floor. And then he got up with his weeping his eyes out and just ran down the dirt track. And, and I remember him running off, and I never saw him again. That was a very sad moment for me. At four and a half years old, because he took my car or whatever it was, I don't know, I used all I had as a four and a half year old to really get at him. The evil's inside, not outside. It's not Idi Amin out there, though it was too. It's me in here with my best friend. And I can do that to him. John says the world is a really dark place. And nothing outside is going to fix it. We needed the one who made it to come back into it. 
because he knows how to fix it and he can fix our hearts. John says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There was no place at the inn. Do you remember? Herod wanted rid of him. His family rejected him. The majority of the Jewish people at the time rejected him. Eventually, the delight was plunged into deep darkness and crucified at the hands of evil men. But that was actually the solution. God changing our hearts, winning forgiveness. That was the way the change was going to happen. And so it says here in verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or husband's will, but are born of God. In other words, we could have a new start, a new heart. We could be changed from the inside out. The evil within could be cleansed. So, Christmas, what's it about? John says, let me go back to some ancient questions. Meaningless? Go to the Logos. The darkness? Go to the Logos. Jesus. And then he says, well, what about satisfaction? Insatiable desires, that emptiness we feel. He says, as the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice John talks about glory. We saw glory. John says, John knew Jesus. He was a disciple, a friend. He knew him. And he writes about him. And uh, he says, we saw glory. What's glory? Glory is when you see characteristics and virtues that are combined that typically aren't combined. Tenderness without weakness. Strength without heavy-handed candidness. Humility without timidity. Passion without prejudice. Firm, unbending will and conviction, yet utter approachability. Power without insensitivity. Never a jarring note of false step. Perfection, glory. We saw something and it was glorious. And when we saw him, our hearts were satisfied because what we always wanted in life was found in a person. And each of us sees glimpses of glory at Christmas. Beauty, wonder, friendship, joy, food, wine, beauty. We're like, wow, and it ravishes us, but only for a short time. It never lasts. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, put it like this. Most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up a subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriage or holidays or learning careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The the hotels and scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry or medicine may have been a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. We saw glory, John says, and it didn't evade us. It satisfies us. Everything we wanted in our hearts came true. Lewis says this. In the final chapter, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. John says there's a, lot, there's a dark world out there. There's meaningless, there's brokenness, and there's these insatiable desires. And then there's the logos that came, the meaning that created everything, that came back to fix it. He gives us our meaning. He fixes the brokenness internally, not externally. And he fulfills us in a way that nothing else 
can. And so the question of intro is always, well, what are you going to do with this? I've got three challenges. What do you do with John? What do you do with John? Christianity isn't about rules. Christianity isn't about uh, um, you know, uh, just a myth that people wrote up in the third century that the, 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 the Catholic Church manipulated, all that kind of Dan Brown theory. Christianity is an eyewitness friend writing about who he thought Jesus was. Do you think John is deluded? Do you think John is like a completely out there to deceive you as a nasty man? Or do you think he's right? John is a first century Jew. It's very hard to persuade Jews that this person in front of you should be worshipped as the Logos of the universe. Because they believe that there's only one God and you shouldn't worship anything in this world. And then your friend, it's very hard to convince your friends to worship you. (laughs) He did. He wrote about it. He distributed it all through the first century world. What do you do with John? Why would someone write this? Secondly, what do you do with the three questions? If you don't believe in God, and good on you, what do you think it's, how do we answer these questions of meaning, the darkness of meaninglessness, the darkness of brokenness, the darkness of emptiness and insatiable desires? What's your light? What's your hope? What's your answer? Does your worldview have a hope? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're okay with that. And then finally, what do you do with Jesus? Do you see it there? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's, there's still light in this world because of him. And to all who received in verse 12, they became children of God. What are you going to do with him? So thanks for listening. Here are the questions. Uh, They're just about on our screen, not quite. Why is there such darkness in our world? Which darkness feels greater to you? Meaninglessness, brokenness or emptiness? Can we fight the darkness? Are we getting better at fighting the darkness? What do you make of John's claim that Jesus is the Logos and the light that answers all the darkness? And then what questions do you have?